We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country. Give me my Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Kapustina. Thank you for tuning in. It's the first episode of the new year, and I have an amazing guest with an amazing story. This week on the podcast, my guest is a journalist, activist, and author, Asra Nomani. She's a former Wall Street Journal correspondent. She has written for the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time People, Salon.com, and many, many other publications. She taught journalism at Georgetown University. You've heard her on NPR. You've seen her on CNN, on Fox News, and on Bill Maher's show, talking about Muslim extremism and Muslim reformism. Azra is the co-founder of the Muslim Reform Movement. She was born in India and has had a distinguished career as a journalist. But her story is also deeply connected to a story of her dear friend and Wall Street Journal colleague, Daniel Pearl. Some of you may remember his name. And for some of you, like me, the story may be new, although the events unfolded 19 years ago. I lived in Russia at the time. They probably covered it in the news, but maybe I just wasn't as plugged in. So here's a little bit of context. Daniel Pearl was the South Asia Bureau chief of the Wall Street Journal. And in 2002, he was following a story that brought him to Pakistan, where he was kidnapped and then became the first Western journalist to be beheaded by Muslim extremists. I didn't know about this story at all, and so I was grateful for the opportunity to talk to Asra and hear her tell the story as a person who knew Daniel very well and who was there in Karachi with Daniel and his wife Marianne when this tragedy unfolded. It's a big and complicated story, so this week I'm doing two episodes. And so in this part one, we focus on Asra's immigration journey and Danielle's role in her adaptation to American life. Here's part one of my conversation with Asra. I usually begin with two simple questions. Where did you come here from and when? I arrived in the summer of 1969 from India. My brother and I, we were uh, left behind, you could say, when my, as my parents tried to settle in America just a couple of years earlier. Wow. And you've, you traveled by yourselves? Yeah, we were there by ourselves they put us on an airplane i had my brother as my care you know taker of sorts and yeah. then the flight attendant um so so my grandmother put my brother and me in matching striped outfits that she had handmade so that if we were separated somehow on the airplane we would be matched back together again 
That's funny. So, yeah. So we went, we left her home in Hyderabad, India, and went to Bombay, India, got on a TWA flight to John F. Kennedy International Airport and arrived there to the loving embrace of my parents, whom I didn't recognize because I was just four years old. And that's why I wanted to so much talk to you because I really love the way that you value this journey that so many people have made that is oftentimes unspoken. Most of the times. Yeah. Immigrants don't talk about themselves. It's not, it's not common. Yeah. We, and we don't talk about the sort of invisible mark, right. Of the journey. And it's so deep and so uh, just impactful on your psychology that you can't even speak of it sometimes, I think. And, and so my, my grandmother had to tell me that she was going to be on the next TWA flight coming over from yeah, India in order to get me on my flight. So as soon as I arrived, I, at my, the name for paternal grandmother in India is uh, your daddy. So I said, where's daddy? And so, you know, so often immigration comes with that kind of subterfuge, I think, because you have to either fool yourself or you have to fool others or something. You have to do some self-talk because just pulling yourself out of your face and your safe place in this world is such a act of, you know, courage and, and, and fear that you have to have some kind of talk. And my grandmother had it for me. And so I arrived sort of waiting for her, but she never came. Yeah. Wow. That's intense. It's heartbreaking for a little kid. Especially when you have immigration or, or trauma as a child, I was told by a psychologist that dissociation is sort of a natural response for survival in dissociation, meaning that you just shut down certain emotions. And so things like, uh, you know, sadness or, 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 or uh, even depression, you don't even know anyway, because you're just a little kid. Yeah. But, um, but then you, you learn to just be cute and loving and, and so that you can kind of survive again. And that's how dissociation can become like a learned behavior for a child to going through those kind of transitions. And you feel that that's what happened with you? Yeah, you know, I think it helped explain for me a lot of like sort of my um, own temperament in life. It becomes a, a gift also in moments of great stress or real panic even where you can kind of dissociate and separate and not get sucked into the drama or emotion of a moment. Um, and I, I think that informed like my, my life path, but definitely like as a kid, I think, yeah, you, you're doing two things. One is you're having to really manage these overwhelming emotions, like emotions that you don't even have words for. Right. Yeah. Um, and then you're also having to observe this entire real new reality around you and learn how to navigate it. And so I, I, I think you become this observer, like a third eye of sorts on your own life. And then, uh, to just learn how to succeed and survive in the new society and then also manage yourself emotionally. And, and yeah, I think, I think, um, you know, that became part of my personality, you know, it can be unhealthy when you 
suppress too much emotion. And then I think what I've always been told is that it can be healthy if, if we are able to somehow still recognize our emotions and our feelings. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that. It's a, it's a tricky balance of, yeah. of staying, staying strong in the moment of stress, but not completely depriving yourself of, of an emotional reaction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you felt like you've also had navigated that. Yeah. I don't, I don't think in my case, it, it had to do with immigration because I moved uh, to the U S as an adult, but I think I had a similar um, experience of acquiring that quality Yes, of detachment or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And um and one of there's this concept in, in Buddhism, especially of non-attachment, mm -hmm. which is a more um, you know, non-judgmental idea that is positive more positive also, where you uh don't blunt, you know, all of the emotions and the experiences that you're going through, but you're just uh, not your ego and your entire self isn't swept up in it. And so I, I feel like that's that balance, you know, once you kind of come aware of this experience happening within you, as I had to, you know, I, I you go through different relationships with it also, because sometimes it's in balance, sometimes it's not. Um, but, you know, back to like how it manifested itself for me is that you just end up for example, when I was just a little girl uh, as a student at Martin Luther King Elementary School, trying to learn all about all these kids with names that I didn't even recognize from my own childhood, you know, childhood back in India, like Ida and Heather and, you know, all these, these, these new names, um, just kind of learn, like, how do you even uh, become friends with another girl? You know, how do you even, uh, like, make connections and Christmas gift exchange was the big ritual when it was still allowed in elementary schools. And I remember my dad would always have me pack up a Barbie doll and I would go to school with great pride. And, um, and uh, one year, one of the girls said, oh, not another Barbie doll. Uh, and I was felt so much so embarrassed right just because you don't it's just such a little thing but you're just like oh man I blew that one and um and I and my but my parents were so kind and you know my dad promptly went to the McDonald's and got a gift certificate to bring in as my gift exchange um and but you know it, it's just it's children too like we don't yeah. know how to express the things that we feel but um but even when there was this girl named Barbara and she would always like jump on my shoulder to pretend to do leapfrog with me, um, with my body, basically, you know, kind of like, I mean, I, I think in a way they would call it bullying today because it was constant and so harassing. Um, and I had, had that response that I had just learned to uh, just not re react, mm -hmm. right? So, but 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 it was really hurtful and annoying and, and a total pain for me to have this girl always like didn't know when she would kind of pounce on my shoulders, um, and and I just remember that because I I, I know today now they you know always uh, guide kids speak up 
express yourself. Uh, don't be a bystander, for example, be an upstander in bullying or in the things that you see. And I just uh, remember that, that kind of experience because it did inform who I was later in some positive, in very positive ways, because I just was not re reactive to um, kind of craziness around me or harassment around me. And so I think that's a positive attribute. But then it, the other is you, you just don't speak up for yourself, right? Yeah. You don't advocate for yourself. So I think that's that's sort of how that dissociation played out for me. Interesting. I think I had a similar experience. And in Russian culture, it's, yeah, similar as it used to be, I guess, here. Like, you parents wouldn't get involved in that as much. I mean, maybe now they do. I don't really know because I'm not there and I don't have kids. So, but I remember when I came and complained to my grandma about being not, I, I guess they would call it bullying. She said, just, just step away, just leave the situation. Yeah. I think it, it was the, um, that's so interesting. And I, that's why I love conversations like this because your childhood and mine are so different. Your, I went to my mom for the advice and she had the same response. And, and I think it's probably, um, generational too. Right. Yeah. And, and probably in, in Russian culture too, like, you know, women aren't going to always respond by just fighting, Definitely right? Not. And especially, especially your grandmother's generation, yeah. right? Because what, what years was she born? Because we have... 37. Yeah. So she's she's my mom's generation, exactly. And so my, my mom was born a decade later, but same dynamic, right? Like yeah. Yeah. Uh, nations apart, but that same generational dynamic, especially that women learned to step away and... And it's good advice too, because it can as be. you and I know, yeah, <laughs> it can be exactly, it can be, but then it, it can also, it, it, you don't get to self-advocate, yeah. right? When it's the only yeah. way. Yes. Yes. And that was their go-to. Yeah. Right. That was, and unfortunately, uh, and my mom, like she's my greatest champion now. So, and, and I'm sure, you know, um, any anybody any woman from that generation is supportive of, of our voices today but my mom would say you know that was the only choice that they had yeah well and, it, and it's odd because my grandma is very outspoken and very active and oh nice she really is very she was a troublemaker in her own That's so great. way yeah in soviet union where yeah it was not always um Tell me something that she did. Consequences. Well, one of the things that she did was in the late 80s, she quit the Communist Party. Wow. Uh, wow. And and not only not only she quit it, she wrote a letter like when you quit the party, you need to write a letter. Mm -hmm. And in, in Soviet Union, just to clarify for, for our listeners, basically most people joined the Communist Party because it was the only party. And if you wanted yeah. to advance in your career you kind of had to join the party for example right. my grand my grandpa my grandmother's husband he didn't join the party and because of that he ended up never making a big career in science he got stuck at the phd level and never really i mean he did his research he did everything but he never became a big name or anything like that yeah he, he wasn't party endorsed yeah uh, right. And so, but grandma was a party member. One had to do that. So she joined, she was never, she was a reluctant as most people, again, like 
you kind of were indoctrinated into it. It was not a, it was not a choice really. And then in the late eighties, Soviet Union was shaky already. And then she quit the party. And when you joined the party, you wrote a letter to the party to join. I want to stand in the front lines of the builders of communism. And mm. as she was quitting, she was in her, uh, I guess, fifties. And she wrote, due to my old age, I can no longer stand in the front lines of the builders of communism and ask you to relieve me of this duty. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. Her old age. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, it was like all just a big F you to, to that. Yeah, basically. I love that story because it, 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 it grounds us in who we are, right? And, and the courage that it took to challenge the status quo. For sure. Yeah. And and she and here she is, the matriarch, right? Who told you to, you know, walk away. Yeah. And I guess, you know, in a way, in a funny way, like that's exactly what she did, only she carried a big billboard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. And, well, she she was she wouldn't like that's the thing. Like it's kind of like a div division there, like on a personal level, she would never engage in a quarrel interesting in a minor fight or anything like that she'd be like okay bye yeah but if it was something of principle that's yeah. when she would be principled yeah yeah when it mattered right yeah yeah when when it mattered for deeper values and um yeah that that really resonates with me too because it really you pick your battles basically and probably for her too like my mother uh, you have limited time, you have limited resources, you know, and you're, I, I, I actually learned that lesson too from my mom, because not every battle is worth fighting and that you have to pick the one that matters, right? Yeah. And take a stand. And then even when you take that stand, you don't make this, it, this long drawn out drama, but she, she basically laid down her letter and made, made it clear and there was no, no, uh, you know, years of battling and this and that, but, but she stood up for what she believed. That's really beautiful. Yeah. I mean, what's her name? Larissa. Oh, nice. What a beautiful name. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, she's, she's a rock star. She's, she's still around and she's rocking. Where is she? She, she just returned from Israel back to Russia. Wow. she lived there for she moved there when she was 75 lived wow. there for seven years and just moved back to russia in the middle of the pandemic oh my god because That's and it's you know and again grandma uh she wants to be closer to the cemetery oh so that's sweet. that's her oh my gosh uh, because she was worried because she was worried that if she were to die in israel it would be D too difficult right. to the extent of impossible to potentially transfer her body back to right. Russia wow. so that she can be buried with grandpa. So oh, she, she's been planning gosh. this for like five years. <laughs> that is, that's so deep. Have you it had is. her have you had her on to talk about her? I, she doesn't speak English, but I'm glad oh. that we get to talk about her a little bit. So oh that's... my gosh, yeah. Because I just do too, because um this is this is the story of all of us. You know, this is your grandmother's story is that she made that journey. And then that there is this thing that, you know, is uh, uh, unspoken so often, but 
it tugs at your heart that connects you back to your roots and your home country. And it may express itself in action like it did for her or it may not, but it's in your heart and you, you can't, that the, 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 you know, the idea that concept that we talked about dissociation, like you can't uh, just compartmentalize it, you know, because without dealing with it one way or the other, because, you know, one of the, um, uh, oh my gosh, like the one part of the story that I didn't say about my brother and me when we arrived back in, well, I say back in the U.S., but when we arrived in the U.S. for the first time, was that my brother was just a couple years older and he remembered my parents, right? And he had memories and he knew exactly what was going on, that my grandmother was not gonna be coming on that plane mm. afterwards. So he was, you know, I was four and then he was, he was about seven. And the moment he arrived in America, uh, and I, I don't talk about it because the metaphor is so um, kind of like can get, send you the wrong message, but I, I know that you and your listeners will be able to understand it. When my brother arrived at JFK, he vomited. And, mm -hmm. and, and you know, that metaphor, like some people can be like, what? That's because he arrived in America. No, it wasn't that, right? It was because he'd made this profound journey and he knew it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I just share that now because just listening to your grandmother's story like it it reminds me like your grandmother so she's how old is she now she's 80 turning 83 this year wow so she um in her 80s right had this pull and um despite all the rationalization right like of the new life and it's covid and you know there's all these ex all these reasons why she shouldn't go back but she does and um and for my brother um, and I think it's like this for so many immigrants. And I, I, I wish I'd studied psychology because it's my one of my passions. But they say that that break, right? That dissociation also is is a break. It's and it can be unhealthy when it becomes like such a deep break that you're disconnected in your brain from any healthy um, processing of experience yeah. or emotion, um, and. And then for a little kid, especially like you don't, your brain's not even fully developed, right? Your yeah. prefrontal is not developed. So you can't do rational thought. But for my brother, it caused a real break. And and they say for immigrants, like it does, that that uh, that there's a, a psychology that we don't even fully grasp or talk about now that happens for immigrants that kind of makes us at risk for all these, you know, psychological I, um, challenges like depression and anxiety. But of course, it's in all of society. Um, but for my brother, it became a, a really deep and um, and um, lifelong challenge. Then that um, that you know it just reminds me, like he, the the poor thing. Like he he worked so hard and um, and uh, tried so much to uh, you know the feed and and survive in this country but he had this vulnerability in his mind because he was just genetics and the environment then that when he became a teenager you know he had the the um the kind of big breaks in the brain that are 
now the words that we know are psychosis and serious depression and um, and and in that and we didn't know at the time what to do uh, the pediatricians and the doctors said oh it's a teenager acting out and oh, these God. things but yeah. he was he, he was passionate about soccer he, he in America he he loved he loved soccer before America discovered soccer mm-hmm he knew Pele and Maradona, and he could tell you the he could tell you the history of the Soviet teams, the Russian, you know, and then when they became Russian teams, like every national player, every um, appearance on the on the global stage. Um, but he, when he was it uh, in his early twenties, then his dream was to play in the World Cup and to become a professional soccer player. And what he did, uh, despite all like sort of logic was did a journey back to India for, mm-hmm. to play for the uh, Bengal something or the other. I wish I knew all the team names, but follow his dream to be in, in, in India, his birthplace to become a soccer star there. And that's where his sickness then by that time got even more profound. Oh. And then he became really sick with um, various diagnoses over the years from including bipolar uh, disorder. And um, and I don't talk about it a lot because it's his story, but yeah. um, but he's you know a symbol of courage for me because he's that boy in the striped outfit matching my striped dress that brought me over to this country and had this challenge inside of his mind that manifested in ways that you know really um, robbed him you know of his full potential, um, but I. A really wise person told me with immigration, like when we came as immigrants, uh, there is a death that happens, you know? It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because I, I always say that immigration is like reincarnation without having to physically die. It's beautiful. That's really true. And like reincarnation, have this memory, right? That's on your soul. There's this concept in Hinduism where they talk about bandhas. Uh, and sometimes like if people take yoga, they'll sort of hear your yoga teacher talk about your bandha. So, uh, and the, um, this is a word of the day for the listeners. <laughs> yeah. Bandha means a knot. Mm-hmm. And they say in reincarnation that you sometimes have knots that connect you uh, to your past life or relationship in a past life that then gets manifested again in your new life. And one of the goals that they say in your current life is to unknot these mm. troublesome connections that you may have. Otherwise it will carry with you into the next life. And so that, I think that you're so right. Cause that's what captures immigration. You know, that yeah. we have these yeah. knots. Yeah. Um, may I ask, where's your brother? Yeah, so my brother, it's he's um, he, any minute now he could um, ignore the closed door and and, and hop down the stairs. Um, I'm talking to you now from my mother's house, um, so I'm living in Morgantown, West Virginia, during the uh, COVID nineteen challenge that we've got. Uh, I I normally live in Northern Virginia, and I came back home as soon as I could with my son to live together with my parents and um, my niece and my nephew. And then my brother lives just down the road. He has his own apartment and he comes every day. 
to my mom's house uh, to have her great cooking. And, um, and he has a job where he works at a local restaurant and is now in his 50s. And the thing about him that I admire so much is, and, and I think this is survival too. This is his survival is he still dreams of becoming a soccer star. Like he tells me, oh, do you know for the Peruvian national team, they have a player that's in his 40s and, and the, and the, and the um, Bolivian team has a player in his 50s. And, and you know, it's been one of my um, unrealized dreams. You know how like they have these make-a-wish mm-hmm. foundations, right? Yeah. I've, I've just wanted to take all the resources that I have in the world and, um, and let him and just realize something of that dream that he had in some way. Uh, and I think I imagine sometimes things like a podcast where he gets, cause he's a savant, right? About soccer. And I imagine a podcast where he can just, just interview people and, and, and just geek out like, like about soccer. Football. Yeah. Oh, about yeah. soccer, about yeah. Geek out with all the millions of billions of people who love soccer in the world. But that he's, um, he, you know, he's gone through his ups and downs. He was married um, for a bit. And that's my niece and nephew are from that marriage and that that marriage didn't survive. But, um, but we have beautiful kids uh, from that, from that marriage. And he's this um, editor that I had one time, he told me when one time when my brother got sick and I was just devastated, it was, I was in my twenties and, um, and the thing that people who have uh, experienced it themselves or have loved one that has experienced psychosis know that um, it's a break, right? And it's, it's literally a break in your mind, yeah. but um, it's like a death. And I, each time he would get sick, I, it was like my brother died again and again and again, but was still alive before me. And I, and I think Sometimes, you know, to your point, like about the reincarnation, like that is what happens. Like each time you make a move and it could be uh, um, move from one city in the U.S. to another because you're, you're it's, it's migration too of sorts, you know, within the same country, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, and, and it could be, I think like if we were to take that metaphor, it's so true. Like whether you leave one job or go to another uh, leave a relationship and go to another like it's a journey each time and and like we have to really take care of ourselves and and kind of check in mindfully about like what's going on for you right like what's checking with your body checking with your thoughts um and and be really self-aware so that we can process it fully right in our brains yeah well and it's and it's interesting because it's it's really interesting what you're telling me all of this because usually people who come at a younger age don't have such vivid memories and maybe they do have all that trauma stored probably most likely but they don't connect to it the way you are describing and because of that i have always thought many times because i came here as an adult and i came with no intention of staying i did not come to immigrate I came for graduate school and I had zero intention of staying. I was planning to go back and then life happened and I ended up staying. 
And so for me, it was kind of a process of five years later, I was already living here, working, paying taxes. And I was like, oh, I'm an immigrant. Wow. It was like a whole different thing. And that's when my process of realizing what the hell's going on started. But started behind. But started consciously. Yes. Yes. Because that's what, you know, even though, even though you were an adult, like I would say that even in that process, but even as an adult, how old were you in your I was 25 when I yeah got you're here. still so young and even then you know the 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 brain your brain isn't even fully developed like it's it's just about fully developed for a woman at that at that point but even there like you had many years of of unconscious processing while you were making a journey that you didn't even know you were making yeah but the fact that it was unrealized I always felt that it it kind of uh set me back a bit because I wasn't yeah. it wasn't I wasn't conscious right and I right. was not connect I was disconnected from the reality yeah yeah uh, and in a way see that's where and and that's where I I, I do believe I, I it's funny because I um I keep you know I, I keep referencing yeah Buddhism and Hinduism I'm Muslim you know <laughs> by um by, by religion but I I believe all these all these religions and philosophies really their philosophies offer us something but in um buddhism there's also this concept of like radical acceptance that i really i had to really hear that and take it because even when we live dissociated or disconnected like we have to even accept that that was what we did and to pro- to survive yes that's, you know because that's you probably i mean you couldn't even manage, even in your twenties, like you had to, you had to learn the academic system. You had to learn just all of our funky bureaucracies in America too. Oh yeah, to survive. So managing all this other emotional stuff was, was just probably beyond even your time, and and your and your emotional capacity even maybe. Probably, you, yeah. Your mind could manage it your mind could acknowledge it when you were ready and had this space maybe even probably yeah probably uh it's it's all a process and it's in and it's interesting how everyone goes through it and the thing is that because i came here as as an adult and i thought that you know it's hard not to look at things that could have been different if i came at a younger age and i always thought oh i wish um my dad did come here when he was younger because he didn't and yeah. he had an opportunity and then and then I kept thinking oh well how my life would have been different if he left then if we came here and I was seven or nine and how I would have gone to high school here and to a different college and all those things and you're telling me this it's and it's very interesting to hear how I always think like what's the best age to 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 move and yeah. really there is no answer to that i understand the what ifs in life like man i went through so many decades thinking that but i finally did come to realize that like um i mean the reality that you know now is is one that would have been completely different of course if other choices had been made but they could have ended up very differently right like they could have ended yeah. up with a car accident that yeah. claimed his life yeah. Two years after he arrived, you know what I mean? There's just, you don't know what it would have meant if if different decisions had been made. And so there's no, 
I always think about worst case scenario in order to talk myself out of the what ifs um, of life, um, especially especially um, in love, uh, because especially when you have children, you finally say, it's only because of all of my messed up decisions that I was able to come to this moment when I was able to create this life that is now before me. It, it, so parenthood becomes like a, a really great, like uh, wake up to like stop having regrets in life and 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 stop having the what ifs. But um, but I, I think I think there is no perfect age, but there's a better process. You know, there's a better. At, this is what I I encourage everyone to just always think about not only in the issues of immigration but in life that you know we have a lot of control over the health of our brains and how we process whatever we're going through immigration is one of those things but immigration is just like a metaphor like we talked about for journeys of yeah. so many kind and we have the capacity to do that journey in a more healthy way, you know, than an alternative that would be less healthy, right? Like we can be, um, you know, angry or stay stuck in grievance or, uh, or, or depression or, or dissociation, you know, like there's so many different ways, but that we can process any, any experience in our life. And the one, and the one, you know, takeaway that I've had in my life is that we just have to try to do whatever we do in life, like in the most healthy way for our brains that we possibly can. And, and there's science about it now, there's professional help, there's, um, there's, you know, great podcasts, like even, you know, this one is not about psychology, but it's about expression, right? So yes. this is where you get to of narrative therapy almost yeah um well yeah. and and talking about it and being yeah. open about it and I'm yeah very i i think i did not expect you know us to go into that and so deep but uh yeah. i i'm really happy that we did yeah you know i um i i didn't either and i think it's just um you know most most people are going to be just listening to us but i think we're connected over zoom as we're talking and i think just being able to see you and see your warmth and engagement and you know your sincerity is what drew me to like tell you these these deep stories that i haven't talked about myself because there's oh you know when you think about it like we live them they define us they're so raw really and they're so profound and um and now here i am uh sharing it with you but but it's because i i feel like i can and i i um I, it's kind of funny because all it took for me to kind of tap that was to go back in my memory to that simple question you just asked me. It was just like one question, that one question, like, when did you arrive here, you know, and where did you arrive? And in there was this experience with my brother, right? And then from that moment came this lifetime of both, you know, challenge and processing and learning. Uh, that we're still on today. Yeah, I really appreciate you going there with me so boldly. I know that many people will recognize themselves or their loved ones in parts of these stories. And um, I do want to move forward uh, to a different part of your story. 
I'd like to talk about your friendship with Danielle Pearl. Going all the way back, how did you meet Danny and what was your relationship? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I smile when I answer the question because I met him in the 1990s. It was um, 1993 that I arrived at the Washington, D.C. Bureau of the Wall Street Journal and, and Danny arrived there also. Which I know for you was a huge, huge achievement and a huge thing coming from being in English as second language yeah. kid. Yeah. Can you, you tell know, me a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I, I you know, I as a as a child immigrant to this country, you know, I um, I think sometimes this editor, a friend of mine helped make sense of this for me also. He said that um, another thing that we do as immigrants sometimes is learn to um, shut off like the overwhelming emotions that we experience because we've made a journey and we need to succeed. And so you can't allow anything to get in the way, including your own emotions. Um, and so I was the overachieving immigrant kid. I was the kid who was gonna make sure that our immigration was a success. And so I got the straight A's. I, um, you know, made sure in um, in ninth grade when we had an award for the highest GPA, I, I made sure that I would be able to get that prize. Um, and um, and so my path became journalism in, in order to understand the country around me and have an excuse to talk to people. Mm -hmm. uh, so I and I can up, relate to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, it gets you out of your own uh, separation, and 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 it gave me a, a foot then in American society. Um, but then in the 1990s, uh, I was still struggling with this concept that they call assimilation. Mm -hmm. I was in my, you know, late 20s by then. And I had just come out of a failed marriage that lasted just a little bit longer than Kim Kardashian's first marriage. Um, I had, had left a man that I had fallen in love with that was here in America, uh, a white American Lutheran, um, who was everything that I wasn't supposed to marry according to the rules of like my conservative, my conservative Muslim background. And so I arranged my own marriage with love, um, called it you know, an arranged love marriage with a guy that fit, checked the box. He was Pakistani, he was Muslim, um, and, um, and it was a complete mismatch. But I journeyed to Pakistan for this traditional marriage and, and forced myself into this identity that wasn't me because I thought that's what I should do. Um, and, you know, through some very good therapy sessions, learned that you know, we should do what we want to do, not what we should do. And every time we start a sentence that says, I should do this or I should do that, we have to just really think about it. Yeah, really check um, it. Yeah, and really check it. And so I'm sorry, I read one of your articles about this marriage and. I was fascinated because uh, in, back in Russia, I studied law. And as one of the things that we studied that was fascinating to me was the way a divorce happens in a Muslim marriage. I was then fascinated and I couldn't believe it, that that's how it is. And then I read your article and you actually described that happening to you. And I was like, oh, my God, this it's is true. indeed real. Yeah. 
it's it's shocking and it's something that I and other women activists and, and male feminists too fight. But there's this concept in Islam that you know you have your religious marriage, right? And so in in that religious domain, what we've been told is that a man can divorce his wife by just saying three this one, one word three times, salah, salah, salah. And that means I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And it's so effing ridiculous because it's humiliating, it's disempowering, it's um, imbalanced in terms of power in the relationship. And, um, and it's just also, it can be impulsive. Um, and so- And wasn't it uh, also in writing in your case? Yeah. So in my case, so I was married in Pakistan, you know, in this religious marriage. And so one day to my shock after our marriage fell apart, I get a piece of mail at the Wall Street Journal office of all things, because he, my, the man that I married sent it to my office. And that piece of paper was the divorce decree. And it was literally in writing there then, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And I was just like, this is ridiculous, you know? And it was really in moments like that that I became a Muslim feminist because it sounds like an oxymoron, but it's just like every um, woman, and I want to say men too, because we got our male allies who have challenged orthodoxy, you know, that um, there was a time when the idea of Jewish reform didn't exist, right? That um, the idea of women ministers didn't exist. So it required feminism within faiths to make that happen. And um, and I just decided for myself that like Islam was too much a part of my DNA and my being that I was going to just uh, walk away from it without challenging these interpretations like this. And, and the I, uh, I divorced you three times um, issue has become, it's, it's interesting that you studied it in, in law school, you know, because it's exactly, it's, it's family law. And, mm-hmm. and in it is inequity, inequality, it's injustice. Um, and it, and it expresses itself in many other ways, like, you know, the settlement, the uh, alimony, the uh, child custody, property rights, like that same kind of injustice. Well, what itself. we were explained, and correct me if that is not fully correct, um, that once the man says that, a woman has to leave with whatever she has on her. In some cultures, women try to wear as much jewelry as they can at any given time because they don't know when that moment might arrive. Oh my gosh, I know. You're just, you're just reminding me of these absurdities like these injustices that yes exist and that does happen and and it's um again interpretation right so it's like law is and religion is really in my eyes it's how we interpret it and so that is the interpretation that too many of our muslim societies have adopted and so uh, that is, in fact, I, it's it's just chilling to me because that relationship of women to jewelry in our traditional societies is wrapped up in that kind of injustice because that's where her property right lies. You know, that is literally what she can walk away with. Right? And that's what it's limited to. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and now just to give, you know, your listeners some hope is that there are women's groups and human rights groups that are challenging those kind of interpretations. So that, for example, in my native India, uh, they have women, Muslim women have taken to court the fact that this, I divorce you three times, let's just say the lock to the third power, right? Is unjust. They've taken that to court and it's been thrown out of court because it became, it started becoming insanely stupid. Like it became so uh, bad that men would literally then text that to their wives to divorce them. And that would become accepted. Uh, yeah. Is and, there an emoji and, for that? Ugh. Yes. Exactly. You know, the broken heart emoji, right? <laughs> You're laughing. I'm laughing, but it's horrible. I know. I know. And so, um, you know, and, and, and bringing up emojis, you know, like, like that's, that's when religion is twisted. Right. I once did a, um, a list of the most ridiculous fatwas, which is a religious ruling in Islam that have been issued. I, I borrowed from, um, Steve Colbert. He, I, I called it the, you know, the ridiculous, right. Of mm -hmm. ba bad fatwas. And um, one of them said, like, you can't use the devil emoji because it's like invoking Satan in your in your language and in your words. And I was just like, you guys have lost it. Like you've so lost the, the narrative about what religion is supposed to be about. But but that's the um, that's I, I had literally gotten that piece of paper just that spring that that Danny then arrived at the Wall Street Journal Bureau. And I was just engulfed with this paradox. Right. And this confrontation with my traditional culture. And I had uh, within me unreconciled issues of migration, you know, and um, identity that I hadn't been able to fuse. Uh, you know, and that's why like this, this, this issue of like living a life uh, where you are able to integrate yourself in a healthy way is so deep and, and, and profound to me because um, because that spring, I had my break. My response then was deep depression. I went every day to a therapist and that's that's when my the, that therapist was able to, to help me process the immigration that I'd made as a child. Because at that time then my, my niece or my brother, um, she was just a two at the time. Mm. And when I heard her cry for her mother, it was like a knife in my stomach because I realized what a two-year-old feels. And I suddenly, through love of my niece, could see myself in a way that I couldn't even remember, right? Because I was so young. Mm -hmm. I'm just um, explaining all this because Man, I was a head case, right? That spring when yeah. this, this new energetic, bright-eyed guy showed up in the newsroom at, in the DC Bureau. And so how did you become friends? So we just became friends then because, uh, you know, we both love journalism and we were both there, you know, at the highest levels of journalism. Um, and we, we, most of the other reporters in the Bureau were young um, parents. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't have a lot of single reporters to hang out with. And, and, and so what happened is that Danny arrived in the Bureau just at a time when my psychologist in these many sessions that I was having 
was advising me, you know, do what you want to do, not what you should do. And she gave me this advice to um, is learn to play because as a little girl, I had learned to survive, right? And to work hard to make sure that this life in America would be a success for our family. Mm-hmm. And so she said, you know, nurture that little girl within yourself and play. And so Danny worked hard and played hard. And <laughs> so all of a sudden, this geeky girl who didn't ever hang out with any buddy after school or on Friday nights or Saturday nights because I well, especially boys I can yeah, imagine coming boys. from oh my a Muslim yeah yeah background I I um all of a sudden the cool kid was like inviting me to hang out and I was <laughs> like oh my gosh like what do I do with my like okay and so I would go um you know after work for happy hour, which of course this conservative Muslim girl, like never even knew what that concept was. But um, Danny's like, have you ever had beer? I'm like, yeah, well, I once had this like um, Guinness. And he's like, oh, terrible start. Don't big <laughs> <laughs> this place called the Big Hunt. Um, I had my first taste of beer. It was wheat beer. He's like, that girl's like wheat beer. True. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. So I had my first taste of beer and I liked it. Um, and so I, you know, learned that this great elixir, right? That is that is having a drink with your friends, um, re- removed inhibitions about socializing that I, you know, I just didn't know how you hang out with folks. And and then Danny was, uh, played the violin and he um, would go to this thing called open mic nights. And I'm like, what's an open mic night? <laughs> what did he play at the open mic? Uh, what kind of music? Like, did, would he come up and play like a classical piece on an open mic night? No, no, no. He was so hip. So he would do bluegrass. Oh, wow. And yeah. And, um, and he was so, he was so good at it that he could do those open mics with other people. Oh, so they jams. Jams. <laughs> See, oh, I don't wow. even know the words. He'd be, so, he'd be like, oh my God, Oscar, you're such an embarrassment. Um, <laughs> but that's what he did for me is though I was by then 27 I, and lived, you know, an adult life in America now, I hadn't immersed, right? I hadn't known American culture because I had been separated myself. And it's so lucky and such a fortune to have someone like that to to guide you into a culture. Yeah, that's what's like connected me with him and what made me so grateful to him because I felt like he showed me graciousness like as a person. And and I know for him and he's such a good guy, like it was just, oh, I thought you were cool and you're interesting. And but he could see me that's the thing is that he could see the fullness of who I was as and yet not not just wrapped up in the identity politics that we so you know mark people by today but but as this person who just didn't know music or hadn't had beer it wasn't about my religion or about my culture like we never talked about these markers of identity but Mm. he knew me fully and my favorite memory is that I confessed to him one time that um well he said like who'd you go to the prom with I'm like prom like nah I wasn't allowed to go to the prom 
And, um, and he's like, oh, we have to fix that. So, <laughs> so literally as I, I turned 28 then and that summer and I, um, through my first party at, at 28, I threw my first party and we called it a midsummer night's prom and, um, and all the women, including myself were old bridesmaids dresses that we never <laughs> thought we'd wear again. And the men wore tuxedos and with cummerbunds. Um, and I, and I ordered a keg, like I never <laughs> had a keg party. Oh my gosh. And the cops came. It was like oh, a huge success. Yes. Huge success. <laughs> it was so great. And, the, and you know, talking to you, I think helps me also process because I can't sometimes explain to people fully, like just the, um, that, the, the depth of that friendship and what it meant to me um, and why it so defined my life then be, and, and my like commitment to like always find justice for Danny because he gave me these gifts. Now that I think back on it and I think about like how the marching orders I got right from my psychologist was to play and to um, nurture your younger self. Like he was that kid, you know, when you're growing up that's on your block that you just hang out with, right? Mm -hmm. That like you go climb trees with, that you, um, you know, go to the ice cream man when he comes around the block, just like those really pure experiences of childhood that, um, that make you full. Can we jump a bit forward? Um, tell me what brought you to Karachi in late 2001? It was already right after 9-11. Yes. And yeah. so that, part of the world was already tricky destination. Oh yeah. It, it was, you know, a uh, typical response that journalists have at the state department was telling everybody not to go to Pakistan. So we're all working our butts off to get to Pakistan. Um, and, yeah. and, and so Danny was working in the uh, Bombay. Uh, he'd set an office for the wall street journal in, in India. And he was there with his, Marianne and so he got on a plane from India and, and landed in Pakistan. What, what brought you there? And and then me um, he uh, I said you know I really want to do reporting um, in in um, Pakistan too and he he kept telling me yes you have to come like we need you um, in order to translate so much of this uh, dynamic because being Muslim and being from that part of the, the world I, I knew so much of the dynamic of extremism, especially that had manifested with the 9-11 attacks. So I was on book leave and I got an assignment then from Salon Magazine to go there and do reporting, including first person narrative about you know, the, the new reality in Pakistan and the war that was about to happen in Afghanistan. So I got on a plane and, and it was, it was deep for me too, because the last time I'd gotten on a plane to go to Pakistan was for this marriage that had, you know, literally evaporated within months. And, um, and so I, it was, it was, it was tough that way um, to return, you know, one, another, another story that I thought was an, another experience that I had in Pakistan that I felt was like a metaphor for my, my relationship with my religion and um, and also uh, just the, the traditional society was that a, a tradition in weddings is that you're when you're leaving now as a new bride with your groom, 
family put the Quran over your head so that you're like leaving under the like protection of religion and God. And, um, and my grandmother that I had left behind in India was now living in Pakistan. And she was at my wedding and she was holding the Quran with my father and it literally fell on my head. <laughs> they had to like scramble to pick it up again. And I, it cannot get better. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, where, where am I not getting the, the hint here? So I really tried to lean in as the metaphor is now to my true self and the, my values and beliefs. So I started playing beach volleyball. I loved volleyball. And one of the fun things that Danny and I did was we played sand volleyball behind the Lincoln Memorial. Um, and, and I would wear shorts, which was something that wasn't acceptable in my traditional Muslim culture. And I would even wear a uh, swimsuit. I started dating, which I really hadn't done. I dated at I was a teen breaking all rules, but I started dating openly, introducing boyfriends to my parents, um, you know, just trying to integrate, right? Like instead of living dissociated, because, and people who are like in the closet about anything, understand the, the tax that can have on your being. So I, I got on a plane after the 9-11 attacks, trying to integrate, um, but, but uh, Danny still had a sense of humor in the midst of this, you know, horror of the 9-11 attacks. Um, and he wrote to me and he's like, I know there's a war going on, but can, can I still look for a husband for you? So, <laughs> so he was always also trying to help, you know, yeah. me like find love and, and integrate all that into my life too. But I landed there um, um, to do this reporting on, uh, on the Islamic extremism and the ideology that led to the 9-11 attack. Mm -hmm. That's that's part of the assignment that I had when I got there. And so you did meet someone there. Yes, I did. I met um, someone because I hadn't learned my lesson uh, about, you know, finding love that's mismatched. And, um, you know, as a girl growing up in the 70s, there was this uh, patch that I had on my uh, jeans that said make love not war yes. so I took it literally <laughs> <laughs> fell in love with this uh, young man who um, I thought I was going to marry you know because again I still had that traditionalist you know path and dated to marry you know which is also not very smart always <laughs> nothing ever. wrong with that <laughs> okay all right good it, it's just that you have to choose wisely so right and not that's the thing is that I, I agree that I, I believe in, um, I still believe in kind of traditional ideas like that, but you have to break up quickly if it's clearly not a good match for you. And, and sometimes just in our generation of first, of, we don't have a handbook and as Muslim women, especially on dating, because um, our moms, my mom was in an arranged marriage. And so we didn't, and we didn't, many of us didn't grow up dating as teens when you're kind of learning the lay of the land. So, so I would always just stay in relationships longer than I should have, because I thought, oh, okay, now I've kissed this man. So I, I must marry him. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Right. That's, that's not sensible, right? That doesn't. Yeah. No, yeah. That's not exactly how it works. Yeah. In exactly. This world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's what I mean. Like, it sounds so, uh, 
naive and innocent. It's because, it totally. So, I, I just thought about how that's how I and I, I'm sure you will understand it. Right. That's how I thought when I was 12. Exactly. And but that's where we are developmentally, because we didn't date when we were 12. So yeah. at 37, that's still how I was. I, you're so right, actually, because by you sharing that with me, like it confirms something that I didn't really know because as a 12 year old, I didn't kiss a guy, right? So I didn't know like, oh, now I think I'm gonna marry him. But that's what we think even at 37. And that's what I thought. And and definitely like got every signal that this was not a good match. Um, and, and 19 years ago um, was um, thinking, okay, this is gonna be the love of my life. Um, and uh, and got this house in Karachi to write my great American novel in Pakistan. And that's it for today. Tune in on Thursday for part two of my conversation with Asra, where she tells how Danielle's kidnapping and murder changed her life and changed the world. I hope you enjoyed this part of the conversation and let us know what you think. Shoot us a message on social media or you can call our Google Voice and leave us a message or email. I'll put the information in the show notes and don't forget to share the show with a friend, someone who came from India or someone who grew up Muslim in post 9-11 America, or someone who's interested in journalism, or someone who can't make sense of dating in America, or someone who you haven't talked to in a bit. Just shoot them a text with a link to the show and let them know you're thinking about them and help us grow the show. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Stay safe. Tune in on Thursday. Love y'all. Peace. This is my country, my country. This is my country, my country. This is 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 my country